And we now come to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. You know, many believe that man is inherently good. And that with the right education, the right environment and equitable economic opportunity, that man's inherent goodness will shine through and that man will then reach his full potential. That is drastically different than what the Bible depicts. The Bible depicts man as totally depraved, which is to say three things. One, that sin has so polluted his entire being that every aspect of his existence, both the material and immaterial, all of his faculties have been corrupted by sin. Two, that man is utterly incapable of both subjecting himself to the law of God, as well as doing anything that would, eat, would ever earn God's favor. And three, that this condition is universal, that no one is exempt. That is a drastically different portrayal. And ironically, only total depravity can actually account for such a grossly inaccurate appraisal of man. Only the totally polluting and corrupting power of sin could generate such a stratospherically erroneous view of man. You would have to be totally depraved to conclude that man is inherently good. And the most definitive passage on this doctrine of total depravity is the one we'll be in this day, Romans 3, 9 to 20, where all of mankind is brought into the courtroom of heaven and is both charged and prosecuted. In fact, the verdict is in. Look with me at Romans 3, verse 9 and following. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now you'll notice that Paul begins verse nine with, what then, are we better than they? Where the we refers to the Jews and points back to the advantage raised in verses one and two where Paul writes, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And he answers in verse two, great in every respect. 
And in the context of that advantage, Paul contends for two realities. One, that though God's judgment is entirely impartial, leveling the playing field between Jew and Gentile, that in no way nullifies God's covenant promises. And so God will fulfill his saving promises to Israel, a theme Paul will take up in Romans 9 through 11. And two, that though that be true, God's saving promises to Israel never guaranteed that each and every Israelite would be saved. And so, even God's judgment of unbelieving Jews is an expression of his faithfulness, his faithfulness to both his character and his word. And with that, Paul not only upholds the integrity of the Old Testament, but he also upholds the integrity of his gospel because he not only affirms that God's promises to Israel still stand, but he also affirms that they can't appeal to either the law or circumcision to secure a place in their fulfillment. The only way to secure a place in the fulfillment of those promises is through faith in Christ, a reality that will take center stage in verses 21 through 26. But before that, Paul must prosecute the charge that he's been making all the way since back in Romans 1.18. He needs to prosecute the charge, secure the verdict, and bring this entire argument to a close. And that's exactly what he does. He reaffirms the charge, he enters into the prosecution, and he secures the verdict. And since what Paul says here applies to every single person who has ever lived, Paul has never lost a case. We can say it like this, God has never lost a case. Everyone is charged, prosecuted, and the verdict rendered according to the teaching of these verses. And so heaven's courtroom comes down in this moment. And you're on trial. And the charge will be laid the prosecution will be given and the verdict will be made, urging you to settle out of court while you still can. So note first the charge in verse 9. The charge. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? The question being, are the Jews better off than the Gentiles? Does the advantage of the Jews which is great in every respect, grant them a more favorable position with respect to God's judgment? Answer, next part of verse one, not at all. Absolutely not. The playing field has been leveled. Why? Next part of verse one, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the charge. That's the indictment. The whole world is under sin and is therefore under the condemnation of sin. A condemnation that, as we'll see, cannot be reversed by the works of the law. But we should probably ask this, just what is sin? How are we to even define sin? 1 John 3, 4 defines it this way, saying, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So that's what sin is. 
sin is lawlessness, which is to say that sin is a violation of the law, either of the written law, the Mosaic Code, or the law written on the heart of every man. And so we can define sin like this, that sin is a violation of the righteousness that God demands in thought, attitude, or action, whether intentional or not. It includes, both, it includes rather both doing what God forbids and failing to do what God requires. And at its core is rooted in self-autonomy whereby a person rejects God's authority over their life and assumes that position which only rightfully belongs to God, being inseparable from pride, selfishness, and idolatry. That's what sin is. It is a violation of the righteousness that God demands, and he has every right to demand it because he is the creator and the judge. And in the same way that no one is exempt from death, so no one is exempt from sin. Sin is as common to man as is life itself. And that's why Paul can say that both Jew and Greek are all under sin and therefore under its condemnation. But not just that, not just under the penalty of sin, but also under the power of sin. To be under sin is to be under its power, where sin is a force that exercises dominion over the unregenerate man. So that being under sin doesn't, doesn't just pertain to sinful acts, but also to a controlling influence that generates a sinful life. In fact, I want you to see the language that Paul uses to describe sin's power. Look at Romans 5.21. Here he uses the language of reigns, that sin reigns. Romans 5.21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin is a power that rules or governs. In fact, look at Romans 6.12. This is exhorting believers who have been set free from sin and now have the ability to not sin. Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. So sin in the unregenerate man is a power that reigns within them and that they obey, that they are under obligation to obey. Also, sin enslaves, like Romans 6.6. 6. Paul says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The unregenerate man is a slave to sin. Sin is his master. And that's related to the reality that sin exercises lordship, which comes out in verse 14 of Romans 6 where Paul says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So the unregenerate man is under the lordship or mastery of sin. And so sin is a power that reigns, that enslaves, and that exercises lordship over a person. It's a power that has corrupted 
man's entire being, rendering him utterly incapable of doing anything that would be deemed to be truly righteous. And ultimately, creating a life and path of iniquity and sin. And that means this, that when we come into this world, we aren't just sinners because we sin. We're sinners because we're under the power of sin. It is the power of sin and being under its dominion that produces all of the sinful acts that are generated from our lives. And so we don't just need to be delivered from the penalty of sin. We don't just need to be delivered from the condemnation of sin. We need to be delivered from the power of sin. We need the power of sin to be broken from exercising dominion over our lives. We need to be delivered from sin's reign. We need to be delivered from sin's enslavement. And we need to be delivered from sin's lordship. And since all of that is characteristic of what it means to be spiritually dead, what we need is spiritual life. We need to be made alive. Through the Spirit's work in regeneration, we need to be joined to Christ in both his death and resurrection, being raised to newness of life. That's why Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be delivered from the power of sin demands new birth, internal transformation, a new heart with new desires, new affections. You must be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1.13 in whom is redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And so the question for each one of us is, has the power of sin been broken in your life? Is it evident that you have been liberated from sin? Can you look to a time in your life when you were clearly under the lordship of sin, where sin was your master, where you were truly enslaved to sin? And can you see now that you've been set free from sin, that that power has been broken in you, that you now are able to walk in obedience and righteousness, where sin is not the rule, but the exception, where the rule now is that you obey the word of God and seek to live for the honor and glory of God. Have you been redeemed from the slave market of sin? This is what each one of us needs. In fact, in Romans 8.13, Paul says this, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, which is to say that if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. You will die a spiritual death, the second death, and enter into an eternity of judgment. And so that's the charge. All mankind, apart from Christ, is under sin, both its penalty and its power, where the penalty is eternal, everlasting judgment, and the power is total dominion, slavery, and rule. 
But Paul hasn't proven the charge yet. He's only made the charge. He's only leveled the accusation. And so it's time now to call his witnesses and to bring forward his evidence. And so note now, second, the prosecution. The prosecution. Look at verse 10. In fact, don't look at verse 10 just yet. I mean, you can look at it. It says there is none righteous, not even one. But I want to sort of give you a bit of a sense of the broader scope of these verses. For starters, there are four there is none statements in verses 10 through 12. Look at verse 10. There is none righteous. First line of verse 11, there is none who understands. Second line of verse 11, there is none who seeks for God. And then the second line of verse 12, there is none who does good. And these four statements are further accentuated by two other statements. One in verse 10 at the end, not even one. And then again at the end of verse 12, there is not even one. So the entire thrust of these verses stresses the universal nature of the charge concerning sin. In fact, the only verse that deviates from this pattern is verse 12, and it says, all have turned aside. All, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. And so even verse 12 is stressing the comprehensive nature of all of this. In addition, these verses depict the entirety of man's nature as being corrupted by sin. The mind is corrupted by sin. Verse 11, there is none who understands. The heart is corrupted by sin. Also, verse 11, there is none who seeks for God. And the will is corrupted by sin. Second line of verse 12, there is none who does good. So every aspect of man's being is in bondage to sin. So that not only is all mankind totally corrupted by sin, but each and every individual is comprehensively corrupted by sin. And so Paul is pressing home the universal nature of the charge, and he's going to bring forth his evidence as he cites portions of Scripture found in the Old Testament. Notice first that man is universally unrighteous. This comes out in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And verses 10 through 12 are quoting Psalm 14, 1 to 3, which is also repeated in Psalm 53, 1 to 3. Only Paul makes a, an edit, editorial adjustment here in this first line to make this statement to be about man's unrighteousness. And there are two reasons to account for that. One being more significant than the other. In the first place, Psalm 14, 1 to 3 repeats the statement that there is none who does good. So Paul likely modifies the first statement to avoid being redundant. And yet more significantly, the theme of righteousness began this entire section. That's Paul's entire argument. That every single one of us lacks the righteousness necessary in ourselves to stand holy and blameless before God. And so Paul is reaching all the way back to his thesis statement in Romans 1.17. 
But in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so to say that there is none righteous here in verse 10 is to say that no one is righteous before God, which is entirely consistent with the reality that no one does good. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7.20 puts these two together when it says this, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And so Paul's editorial adjustment here is entirely appropriate. We could even call it breathed out by God, inspired by God. And this is fundamentally man's problem. He isn't righteous and therefore lacks what is necessary in himself, again, to stand holy and blameless before God, necessitating that it must be the saving activity of God in Christ that would ever grant the sinner righteousness through faith in him. And so Paul begins with a sort of topic statement that shapes the, the, the rest of these verses. There is none righteous, not even one. Man is universally unrighteous. And he also has a universally corrupted nature. And this is where we see the corruption of the mind, the affections, and the will. Verse 11, it says there is none who understands. And in the language of Psalm 14 and verse 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. And there are none. They don't understand God. They don't understand his ways. They don't understand what he wants. They have become futile in their speculations, Romans 1.21, and go about in the futility of their mind, Ephesians 4.17. And so, though man can be incredibly intelligent and can accomplish incredibly sophisticated things, Due to the corrupting power of sin, his comprehension of God is utterly foolish. And that's because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 2.14. To understand the things of the Spirit demands that one have spiritual life and the illuminating work of the Spirit. And so they have a sin-corrupted mind. But not just that, they also have a sin-corrupted heart. Second line of verse 11, it says there is none who seeks for God. What does it mean to seek for God? It's to have a heart that is completely sold out to do his will. Psalm 119 verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. To observe God's testimonies is to be careful to perform them and requires that one see God with all their hearts, that one be completely devoted to God. And yet as God surveys the sons of men, there are none who do. They don't desire God. They don't long for God. They don't pursue God and they don't seek the glory of God. Instead, they're entirely consumed with the pursuit of their own pleasure and the pursuit of their own glory. 
which is why, verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Language that's reminiscent of Isaiah 53, 6, that all of us like sheep have gone astray, that each of us has turned to his own way, which inevitably results in turning to unrighteousness. The very unrighteousness described in Romans 1, rendering man morally useless, morally worthless, and as possessing both a foolish and darkened heart. But not just a sin-corrupted heart. With sin-corrupted desires, they also have a sin-corrupted will. Second and third line of verse 12, it says, there is none who does good, there is not even one. This is the bondage of the will. And it's not a statement about man's ability to carry out relative acts of goodness, as though man can't do anything that is relatively good. He is, after all, made in the image of God. Instead, this is a statement about man's slavery to sin, that he's dead in his trespasses and sins and walks according to the course of this world, indulging the desires of the flesh and is incapable of subjecting himself to the law of God. And so not only is man universally unrighteous, but he also has a universally corrupted nature, where his mind, affections, and will are comprehensively polluted by sin. And man's universal corruption results in violence committed against his fellow man the first of which is expressed in universally corrupted speech. And I want you to see how comprehensive this is. This is verses 13 and 14. Notice the throat is referenced in the first line of verse 13, the tongue in the second line of verse 13, the lips in the third line of verse 13, and the mouth in verse 14. The universal dimension of the corruption of human speech couldn't be clearer. And the first two lines of verse 13 come from Psalm 5.9, which in full says this, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hardly a flattering description of human speech. And so look at verse 13. It says there, their throat is an open grave. What are graves emblematic of? They're emblematic of death. And if you go to a graveyard, what do you see? You see graves that are sealed, that are covered over. So the stench of death can't reach our nostrils because the stench of death is just too awful. And yet here, the human throat is depicted as an open grave which signals one of two things. It either signals that the source that is producing or generating our speech is corrupted or that our speech actually causes death, deadly effects of speech. And though the first is obvious, both are true. 
Our speech has the power to destroy, has the power to even kill. That's why in the law, it forbids bearing false witness against one's neighbor, Exodus 20 and verse 16. Because according to Proverbs 11:9, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. Speech can actually result in unjust death, where you would bring a false charge against a neighbor that they would then be found guilty of, whereby they would be put to death, which is why the law would actually require death of the one bearing false witness. Speech can kill. And Paul, citing Psalm 5.9, depicts the human throat as an open grave. Look at the second line of verse 13. It says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. And Psalm 5.9 brings out the issue of flattery, which indicates that even kind words can be deceiving. Flattering words. Psalm 12.2 says this, they speak falsehood to one another, with flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak. And then Proverbs 29.5 says this, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. With their tongues, they keep deceiving, which is why Psalm 5.9 also says there is nothing reliable in what they say. And then look at the last line of verse 13. It says, the poison of asps is under their lips. Quoting Psalm 140 in verse 3, which says this, they sharpen their tongues as a serpent. The poison of a viper is under their lips. In fact, the poison of asps refers to the venom of an Egyptian cobra. And so this pictures man's speech as deadly venom. Venom that is released in others through sin-corrupted speech. And then verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Quoting Psalm 10 and verse 7, which says his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. And altogether, you have an absolutely stunning description of the corruption of human speech. And it's not that difficult to see that this kind of speech is on full display in our day. All you'd have to do is go to social media or go to a really controversial news article and read the comment thread. And yet even then, we don't even need to look far. We can no doubt look to words that have left our own lips to see that Human speech is as corrupting as it is and is as corrupted as it is. You can probably recall words that have been deadly, deceptive, venomous, and full of cursing and bitterness that have come from your own mouth. And not just prior to coming to Christ, but even since coming to Christ. And as Paul demonstrates the violence that man does to his fellow man, he doesn't stop at universally corrupted speech. He also highlights universally corrupted paths depicted with defeat and cited from, from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Look at verse 15. 
It says their feet are swift to shed blood. Man's feet are swift to both kill and murder. The history of man is replete with murder. The first murder ever committed being Cain's murder of his brother Abel. And even now, we see a complete disregard for human life at every level of society and in every expression of society. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths, which doesn't refer to feelings of destruction and misery, but rather to the objective reality of it. Sinful man inflicts destruction and misery on others. And verse 17, the path of peace they have not known, which again does not refer to a subjective lack of peace in the heart of man, but rather to a path marked by violence. As one commentator writes, quote, human beings are, have regularly acted in a warlike and, and violent fashion, unquote. Violence done not just in speech, but also in physical harm of others, which leads us to the underlying issue of all sin, that man is universally irreverent. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoting Psalm 36.1, which in full says this, transgression speaks to the ungodly in his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. So the issue is the fear of God. And we know from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. And so the, the issue on the one hand is that there are none righteous, and the other is that none fear God. Psalm 128.1 says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then it defines what the fear of the Lord is in the next line when it says, who walks in his ways. So it's the fear of the Lord that generates a life of obedience. And yet the unregenerate heart, apart from God's saving activity in Christ, is incapable of the fear of the Lord. They must be given the fear of the Lord. And so that's a pretty bleak picture painted of the condition of man in his unregenerate state. And yet most people would object to that, would reject it. They would reject that they're as bad as this text says they are, they might be willing to say that others are as bad as this text says, but they would be absolved of the full thrust of this because they have not reached the, the full expression of what is described here. And I want to see if I can't handle that for a moment. What's the underlying objection? Well, it's obvious I'm not that evil, which is an admission that you are evil. It's just saying that you're not that evil. And yet when you make that comparison, who are you comparing yourself to? You're comparing yourself to others. 
So what if we modified the comparison and compared you to a perfectly holy and righteous God who dwells in heaven in unapproachable light surrounded by seraphim who cry out, holy, holy, holy. How would you fare in that comparison? And really, you are incredibly forgetful. What if we played a video montage of all of your worst moments in your life and put that on the screens behind us and just sat back and took that in? How would you fare then? None of us would want to be in that situation. And furthermore, you've actually had the benefit of living in a very civilized society, a society that has been largely shaped by a Christian ethic. And so you've been the beneficiary of a society that is shaped by a, a sort of socialism, a, a socializing that facilitates you being, for the most part, at your best self. Well, what if you were in an uncivilized society, a primitive society, where there wasn't such a, a standard of righteousness, let's say. And then furthermore, we can say this, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all, James 2.10. And no one is going to raise their hand and say that they've only stumbled in one place. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and have done so countlessly. And so no matter how you dice it, the charge is that the whole world, every single one of us, are all under sin. The witnesses have been called. The evidence is in. All that remains now is the verdict. And so note third, the verdict in verse 19. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. This is very distinctly courtroom language. That every mouth may be closed signals that the defense rests. In fact, there was no defense. The defendant had nothing to say, could not offer a defense to the charge proven against him. He is guilty as charged and accountable to God, and not just him, but the whole world. So the whole world is in the courtroom of God and has put their hand over their mouth Realizing they have no defense before God, they are rightly charged, prosecuted, and now the verdict is being laid. They are accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Where the works of the law are the, the, the works the law demands. It's obedience to the law. No one, by virtue of their obedience to the law, is going to be justified. And Paul here is referring to 
justification as a future reality, pointing forward to the future judgment, where a person isn't first declared righteous, but where a person's justification is vindicated. We've seen this before. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God in heaven declares you righteous. The gavel of heaven comes down and you are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. But the vindication of that, the confirmation of that will take place in the judgment when God will affirm that, yes, I declared you righteous. And yet, for no one will that take place by means of the work of the law, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law has no power to save. It can only condemn. And the reason that is, is expressed at the end of verse 20, where it says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul expresses this reality in Romans 7, 7, when he says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. And so the law brings about the knowledge of sin. It's in place to bring about condemnation. And even to use the language of Galatians 3, it's to function as a guardian to prepare us for Christ and our need for Christ. And so that's the verdict. Not only is the charge that each and every one of us is under sin, under both its penalty and power, the evidence supports this reality that there are none righteous, not even one, that everything within us, our entire being, our very nature are corrupted by sin, which is expressed in corrupted speech and in corrupted violence, actions of malice taken against our fellow man. And that's because there is no fear of God in us. Apart from the saving activity of God in Christ, we do not fear God, and therefore we do not obey God. And with that evidence in place, the verdict is in. We are accountable to God for every violation of his law, every act of unrighteousness. Look where Paul goes in the very next verse, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. You and I do not have in ourselves the righteousness we need to stand holy and blameless before God. But God has accomplished salvation in and through his son, whereby in receiving this indictment and coming under the, the full weight of the verdict, 
We can look to Christ, believe on him, and be imputed with his righteousness, where his righteousness would be counted to us so that when God looks upon us, he would see that righteousness. And when we enter the courtroom of heaven, we will enter that courtroom with the righteousness of Christ. And so we need to come under the full weight of the thrust of these verses. Recognize that we are judged and condemned under the law. And then look to Christ, who not only fulfilled the law in every respect, securing a perfect record of righteousness in his active obedience, but even went to the cross. And on that cross, suffered as though he had committed all of the sin of all who would ever believe on his name, the very sins outlined in verses 10 through 18 that he bore that in himself, that he died, that he went into the grave, and on the third day rose again, proving he had conquered both sin and death, that he had satisfied the Father's wrath and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so what you need to do is turn from your sin, to confess your sin, to confess that what the Word of God says about your condition is true, that God is totally just to condemn you for all of eternity for every violation of his law, that you would suffer under the wrath of God for all of eternity, that it would be just for him to do so. And yet look to his son and confess his son as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, knowing the promise of scripture is that you will be saved. And so if you would look to him now, and you would believe on his saving work upon that cross, his resurrection from the dead, your sin will be forgiven. You'll be delivered from the penalty and power of sin. And you will enter into a life whereby you will have the Spirit of God now in you, having sealed you, indwelling you, empowering you to live the life you could never live, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, that you would glorify God and enjoy him forever and anticipate the, the glory that is to come when you will be in his presence to enjoy him for all of eternity. You know, we've talked about deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. What we haven't talked about is deliverance from the presence of sin. And for the Christian, there will be deliverance from the presence of sin, when you will be saved to sin no more and will exist in perfect holiness, walking in perfect obedience, worshiping Christ, worshiping God the Father in the power of the Spirit the way you wish you could now. And what a day that will be. when the full reality of deliverance from the penalty and power of sin are realized and you are finally delivered from even the very presence of sin. As you think about heaven, as you think about the life to come, there should be nothing 
more thrilling, next to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ himself, nothing more thrilling than the presence of sin being entirely removed from you, that you would exist in perfect holiness for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you would help us to come under the full weight of your word. You know our hearts and you know our resistance to embracing what your word says about our condition. We want to make an appeal and say that we aren't that evil, that it's not that bad. Though there may be some, it's not us. And Father, we confess the folly of that. Help us to see what you see. Help us to see ourselves in light of your holiness. Because we know that as we do, we will see Christ as oh so much more precious. And we pray that if there are any here this day who have still not yet bowed their knee to him, that you would bring them under the conviction of sin and that this day would be the day that they do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.